KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. It's time for Midday Edition on KPBS. Today we're talking about how the pandemic has changed culture. I'm Jade Hindman. Here's to conversations that keep you informed, inspired, and make you think. The culture around personal space, workplace etiquette, and even tipping has changed. So what do we need to know? Tipflation right now is really a hot topic because because we're seeing it more and more and more. Plus, we'll look at how, in many cases, the pandemic helped create more inclusive workplaces and how it changed the way we look at illness. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. The World Health Organization has ended the global health emergency for COVID, and later this week, the U.S. health emergency for COVID will expire. Still, health officials say while the emergencies are over, the pandemic isn't. That leaves many of us in a gray area, especially since so much changed during the pandemic. For example, what's the appropriate thing to do when you're sick with a cold or any other respiratory illness? Are the days of going to school or into the office sick, over? And what about tipping? Now that it seems everyone expects one, what's the proper amount? And what's proper etiquette? Well, Jules Hurst is an expert in etiquette. She graciously joins us. Jules, welcome to Midday Edition. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to have you. All right. So what changes have you seen when it comes to tipping since the start of the pandemic? So during the pandemic, you know, especially as we knew that we weren't going anywhere anytime soon, right? And we really relied on the delivery, people putting the groceries in the back of our trunk. I mean, we really relied on them so heavily that we felt compelled to like just tip them, right? And, and we we were tipping them above and beyond more so than what we would have any other time. And that just kind of stayed, <laughs> And especially like before when you would go to a fast food or or to a non-sit-down meal and you would see a little tip jar there and we would put our change in there or a dollar bill in there and and we wouldn't really think anything of it. Well, away went the tip jar and because everything is pretty much on that little iPad now or that or that pad. Mm-hmm. So they turn it around and and there's a you know the tip options there for you. And you know, and because before remember we were just putting our change or that dollar in, in that little tip jar. Now we're faced with you know, 18%, 25%, 30%, you know, just these numbers. And we're like, what are we supposed to do? You know, they're looking at you, people behind you are awaiting. So, so right now, so tipflation right now is really a hot topic because, because we're seeing it more and more and more. So people are scratching their heads. So yes, much, much to unpack here. 
And also, like, since the pandemic, I, like a lot of people, started using DoorDash, Instacart, you know, all of the food and grocery delivery apps. Um, How much should I tip those who are shopping for groceries and delivering them versus those who are picking up an order of food? If the app is already adding the tip the gratuity, not the service charge, because you know, when you start going down, you know, the, the line items of all the charges, you'll see, you know, delivery service or this service. So that's not the same as tipping. So let's, you know, make sure we understand that that because sometimes people will say, oh well, it's a, it's probably already in there. So that's number one. So it's generally going to be between three to ten dollars. And here's how you want to think of it. When somebody goes above and beyond, that's when we, you know, that that's when we tip, right? For somebody who goes above and beyond. So if they are delivering your food, you know, it could be three dollars. But if if they're picking up your stuff and and they're delivering it to you, then that would be more towards the ten dollars. So again, it's just what it is that they are doing for you at that time, the service they are providing. Should the tip be adjusted by the cost of the food or the groceries? And I'm thinking about how to answer this one because, Mm -hmm. again, if it's just somebody who's bringing it, you know, who's just picking up a large order, putting in their car and delivering it to you, but let's say, you live upstairs and they have to take multiple trips and it's raining, you know, so there's that there's a lot of variables. So again, you may want to give a little bit more to that person who has to take multiple trips up the stairs to the back of the of the complex uh, in the rain versus somebody who's literally just picking up bags from the counter to their car, from the car to your front door. See, see there's a little bit of a difference between the two. That's how one should tip. You touched on this earlier, um, but one way tipping has changed in recent years has to do with technology. Many tip jars have been replaced by tablets. So as soon as you swipe your card at the checkout counter, the question pops up with a suggested amount in big, bold letters. Would you like to tip? And you feel like everyone can see it and everyone's judging you, especially the cashier. Um, (laughs) With all of the pressure, you know, whether real or perceived, uh, you just hit Yes, for a 21% tip on a pack of bubblegum you just purchased. Um, You don't even know for certain if that frontline worker will get the tip or if the corporation takes a percentage. (laughs) What's proper etiquette for digital tipping and and how does it really work? Yes. Okay. So number one, we should never feel pressured, you know, but I get it, you know, because I do too. It's like he or she is looking at you and Mm -hmm. they're just looking at you and they're smiling and so, you know, again, just with the tip, you know, if you're ordering something and it's complicated or you're ordering, let's say, coffee for the whole the whole office, your whole department, you know, whether it be coffee or food, you know, then of course, you know, uh, you would tip accordingly. If it's an establishment that you frequent often and it's the same barista or the same sandwich maker or the same, you know, then you, of course, you because you've, you've built a rapport, you would tip in that case as well. Also, one other way that I think technology has changed things is is that, you know, you assume that you can leave a tip on a card or something, but there's still a lot of places where you can't do that, where it's cash only. The sky cap, for example, at the airport, right? some salon services that you might get, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Anytime you travel, you do want to carry some cash and you want to carry one fives and tens, not just 20, 50s and 100s, because we still do tip. Like you said, sky caps. We still tip at the hotel with the doorman, the bellhop, our housekeeper, concierge. So we need 
dollars for them because as you mentioned, there is no credit card transaction, right? Because they're providing a service. And until we see their Venmo QR code, uh, there is no other way to tip them, which is this is something if they provide a service we tip, we need to tip them in cash. You mentioned tipping uh, hotel employees. What about housekeeping? Sure. So housekeepers, uh, it would be two to five dollars per night. Um, and that would be because a lot of hotels are no longer cleaning on a on a daily basis. You know, they'll clean every I think I've seen some that say like every second day or every third day. But, you know, please do let us know if you need towels, etc. So if you are going to request extra towels, you would give them again, $3, $2, $3 every time, you know, they bring you something. But if they are going to make up your room every single day, then you want to make sure to leave the tip each day because, you know, the housekeeper changes or can change from day to day. So you want to make sure that the person who is actually cleaning up your room that day is actually getting that tip, that 2 to $5 tip. And if you, you know, feel compelled to leave a little bit more, then go. You know, there is no, no one's ever going to say, oh no, $5, <laughs> you already gave me $5, you don't need to give me any more. This is Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. I'm speaking with etiquette expert Jules Hurst about tipping. I mean, you know, with with tipping seeming to have been expanded, the expectation for a tip. I mean, when ultimately, when is tipping expected and when is it not? Okay, so absolutely under no circumstances should we ever stiff somebody at a sit down restaurant. That is, you know, that that. That one is there. And also, with that being said, the national average for tipping at a sit-down restaurant is 18 to 20%, I think, with like 19 or 20% being like the, the amount every single time. So when you're thinking about, can, you know, is this restaurant in my budget, you have to think about the tip as well. It's not, oh, do we order another round of drinks or do we or do we give the whole 20% on tip? Home, you know, that's not the question. You know, it's so the tip has to be part of that overall budget. So that is something that we don't um, want to skip out on. The same thing with our nail salon, with our dog groomer, those anybody who provides a service like like that, any kind of beauty, your dog, uh, sit down, we don't skip the tip. Hmm. You mentioned the salon. And and from what I remember before the pandemic, the rule was always to tip the, the hairdresser, for example, but the owner of the salon doesn't get a tip. Correct. So but a lot of that has changed now, right? Because oftentimes, there's not there's not even a salon to go into. Everybody has their own studio in a, in a, a, a solo salons or something. Yes. Um, and in, but still, your your beautician is asking for a tip, but they technically kind of run their own business. <laughs> what about what do you think about that? I would still tip because they're still cutting my hair. They're still they're still providing all the same service with the same overhead, uh, and, and we all know how expensive everything is getting. So. I factor that in as part of my, when I'm going to go get my hair done, I know how much that's going to cost and I know how much I have to tip. Again, because everything is so expensive. A lot of us are just trying to make it. Uh, Since the pandemic, what areas do we tip in now that we didn't before? Starbucks. (laughs) And so a lot of your, your coffee houses, a lot of your, I guess it would be fast food, but they're not really, it's not a chain fast food. So a lot of your, like, 
smaller restaurants that uh, like for lunches and your food trucks, they all have their QR code so that you could tip them. So a lot of anybody who's providing some type of meal mm-hmm. is asking for a tip. Whereas before it wasn't like that. Is the tipping percentage uh, the price including tax or is it pre-tax? Ooh, excellent question. It's pre-tax. Okay. All right. Yeah. Good to know. Good to know. Yeah, you don't want to you don't want to tip on tax. All right. Even see like even in those apps, I think it's it's including the the tax mm-hmm. in there when it gives you a suggested mm-hmm. amount. I don't know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so one more thing on yeah. on the apps and on the the screen. So let's go back to that coffee house, the, the non-sit down establishment. Mm-hmm. You know, you can hit the other. So let's say you know this person and you didn't really you ordered just a regular black coffee, nothing fancy, and you want to leave something but you don't want to leave, you know, the 15 the 20 the options given. There is that other option that you can also click and put your own amount. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, you know, everyone, sure, everyone is deserving of a tip. Should that be put on consumers and customers or corporations to just pay uh, a fair salary, a living wage? And that's the argument. Yes. You know, why is it on us to have to bridge the gap on their, uh, you know, in their wages? So, so that, but that is the argument. I would say pay them more. And maybe we can still tip them a little bit, but at least we wouldn't feel the pressure. Right, right. Because I, I, yeah, because I feel right now like we as consumers are feeling pressured to bridge that gap. Now, I want to dive into what we should be thinking about when we are sick. I mean, the rules for what is acceptable when it comes to being sick have changed. Uh, If you sneeze out in public, you're likely to get a mean side eye rather than a bless you now, you know. (laughs) But before COVID, there was an emphasis on toughing it out, going to work, kids going to school, even if they're sick with a cold and a bad cough and sneezing. Uh, What's proper etiquette now? Yeah, you know, we, we never should have gone to school or <laughs> because then you get other people sick. Uh, but yes, you know, they are expecting you to go and just to to tough it out. But like any other time, if you have a fever, stay home. If you're if you're coughing and coughing and coughing, stay home. If it's if you're getting over it, if you have a little bit of a sniffles, you know, that would be OK to go. But if you're coughing so much that you're not even really paying attention, then why are you there? It's, uh, and like you said, you know, it, one little sneeze and everybody's looking at you like, you, oh, my gosh, right? And they're, mm-hmm. get away from me. <laughs> so, so you really have to use your best judgment. And if you don't feel well, again, you shouldn't have to go if you have a fever. Yeah, it feels like the social norms and culture around that um, have certainly shifted. They certainly have, especially because you can't, even though a lot of organizations are frowning upon this, but you can still work from home. So they'll say, well, you can stay home, but can you still do X, Y, Z? Okay, well, then I'm not really calling out sick. I'm just working from home. <laughs> so that's where you have to make a clear distinction. You know, am I calling out sick, meaning no work? Or am I just working from home because I've got a fever and I don't really want to go in to the office? Right. You know, and what about social distancing and personal space? Before the pandemic, it was common to give hugs and handshakes for greetings. Now, when you reach out for a handshake, you'll, you're likely to get a fist bump instead. And, you know, and some people are really anxious about their personal space being violated by a hug, you know. Um, so what are the rules around greeting people? 
first off, a good rule of thumb is to be about eight to 10 feet away from the next person, right? So that's kind of like our personal, like our boundaries. Uh, if our body language in this case plays a lot into it. So if somebody comes up close to you and they come up really close, uncomfortably, you know, just take a step back. So if you're with someone and they do that, that doesn't mean that, you know, they want you to take a step back with them. They're just trying <laughs> to get, you know, some more space between the two of you. So if you are in, a, let's say, in a situation, whether it be business or just you're seeing someone and you know that the handshake is coming and you are not fine with that, then you can simply either just put your hands together uh, just by your chest area, kind of um, like grasping them and, you know, just with a head nod, good to see you, kind of, a you know, like a gesture. And that should tell the other person just by doing that. I'm not shaking your hand because my hands are here by my chest. If you're going to do a fist bump, then as you're putting up your hand, instead of putting it up to give a handshake, automatically create that fist bump. So that way, that person that you're going to be exchanging this with knows what is acceptable behavior for that interaction. You have to set your boundaries. Set your boundaries. Absolutely. Correct. And you cannot be offended. Some people get so bad. Well, they don't want like, you know, it has nothing to do with you. Or maybe it does. But for the most <laughs> part, it does not. It's not always about you. It's that other person's comfort level. And there's nothing wrong. It's we don't know what goes on behind if she goes home, he or she goes home to somebody who's immune compromised or they themselves are immune. It's none of our business. We saw what they're what they're allowing. So go with it. All right. Some great advice, Jules. I so appreciate it. And I'm sure a lot of other people do as well. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for allowing me to um, help everyone out there be gracious and courteous. <laughs> <laughs> Jules Hurst is a Los Angeles-based etiquette expert. And of course, Jules, thanks again. Thank you so much. We'd love to hear your thoughts on etiquette when it comes to tipping and personal space. Give us a call at 619-452-0228. Leave a message or you can email us at midday at kpbs.org. Coming up, we continue the conversation with how the pandemic changed remote work. It doesn't have to be either or, and that's that has been the conversation for decades. Hybrid is best. In, in, in every survey, it turns out that hybrid produces the best results. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. If you're listening to this, then chances are the pandemic has had a major impact on the way you work and the way you think about working in the first place. Whether you've gone fully remote, are back in the workplace, or you're trying out a hybrid schedule, one thing is clear. The American workplace looks a lot different than it did three years ago, and the entire culture of working has undergone some major changes. Joining me now with more on what's changed since COVID upended the workplace is Kate Lister, president of Global Workplace Analytics based in Carlsbad. And Kate, welcome back to the program. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. Great to have you. So remote versus in-person work remains one of the most highly debated topics in the workplace. What are employees saying about their preferences? Employees 
actually haven't changed their preferences in almost 20 years. That's how long we've been following this trend. Typically, before the pandemic, 75 to 85% of employees said they'd like to work from home at least some of the time. In the pandemic, 80% to 85% said that they would like to work at home some of the time. The difference now is they have the opportunity to ask for it. They're in a position to ask for it. And they are more uh, galvanized in their resolve, having experienced it for the last three years. And what are the biggest reasons that you're hearing from workers about why they want to keep working from home? Do you commute on five much? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good reason, right? (laughs) Yes, exactly. I mean, number one reason is the commute. And in fact, they give back 50% of time that they would have otherwise spent playing in traffic. uh, And they spend that time working. And that's also been consistent before the pandemic. So that's the first thing. The second thing is work-life balance. Uh, Mm -hmm. Just being able to throw in a load of laundry in the middle of the day, not having to, that, that tension of fighting the traffic, of getting there on time, of having to leave earlier and earlier to make sure that you get to that meeting on time. Uh, it turns out that flex time is just as, is, is actually more important than uh, f- uh, flexible location. And that's been true for a long time also. So 95% of people would like to flex their time and 85 to 90% would like to flex their place. Hmm. And it's about control, I think. You know, we, we just we want some control over our lives. You know, I imagine employers have a different perspective, uh, too, when we're talking about the biggest reasons people do want to work a hybrid schedule or just work remotely altogether. Um, What can you tell us about what employers are thinking in terms of that? It's actually the gap has has, uh, really been reduced in the last couple of years. At the beginning, uh, employees and employers were very far apart. Um, And uh, prior to the pandemic, only 5% of employees worked from home half time or more. Uh, during the pandemic, it was like 60%. So big, big, big change. And, and where they've come together is around that hybrid time. Uh, there are more employees that want to work fully from home, about 30 to 35% want to work fully from home. Managers want uh, only about 25% or 20% of managers want them to be uh, fully remote. Uh, about 15 to 20 percent want to be fully in the office. So maybe they don't have a place to work at home. And that has been a problem during the pandemic. Uh, Maybe they like to go uh, to the office to get away from whatever it is at home. Um, And then the balance is in that middle hybrid. The employers are pushing for in the office three to four days a week. Employees are pushing for home uh, uh, three to four days a week. And historically, it's been for people that have worked from home, it's the average has been two and a half days a week. So <laughs> the, the tension is there, but, but we're getting there. Uh, the problem is they're, they're asking people to come to the office and people aren't coming. I think that's probably the biggest reason I'm getting phone calls from companies today. So why are companies wanting people to come back to the office? That's the first thing I ask them when I talk to them. You know, why? And, and I get Typically, it's uh, we feel like productivity is going down. We feel like it's uh, hurting our company culture. We feel like uh, it will impede aviation. Uh, it will reduce employee engagement. And so I say, okay, and how have you measured that? And I've never had any, any company leader that has shown me the measurement. They don't measure it. It's a feeling. And so 
you know, you've got these leaders who want to lead, who want to have their people around them, and they're just grasping at, sto- at straws for why. There's good reason to have them come in, but there's evidence, there's, there's a long history of evidence in each of one of those categories that shows it's just not true. People are more productive, culture has not suffered, engagement is actually better at home, all of those factors. Oh, innovation. Uh, that innovation actually is a two-part process. You're most creative when you're alone, right? In the shower, mm-hmm. <laughs> where you have your great ideas <laughs> in the car, uh, and you're most um, innovative you're bringing those creative ideas together and turning them into uh, something viable in groups. Yeah. So, it, you know, it doesn't have to be either or. And that's that that has been the conversation for decades. Hybrid yeah. is best in, in, in every survey. It turns out that hybrid produces the best results. What do you think's behind them really wanting to get people back into the office, despite what data suggests? Two things, I think. Uh, The first is trust. They don't trust their employees to work untethered, in spite of the fact that 80% of managers say that people were as productive or more productive during the pandemic. There's that worry. There's that doubt. You know, are they sitting on the sofa eating bonbons? Well, who cares if they are, if they're actually producing the results that they're supposed to produce? In a lot of ways, the the pandemic didn't create management problems. It revealed them. Hmm. And one of the things that it primarily revealed was that managers don't know how to manage. They're not managing by results. They're managing by butts in seats, backs of heads, which doesn't tell them anything about a person's productivity. I mean, the highest time online shopping is uh, during work hours before the pandemic. So <laughs> what does that tell you about whether or not they're, they're actually fully working when they're in the office? Uh, the second thing, I think, is sort of the, the, uh, the typical leader is probably on the extrovert scale, probably has a, a pretty high self-opinion. <laughs> uh, you know, we saw this with, I won't mention the name, but a very large company that came out early in the pandemic and uh, said, no good will ever come of remote work. I was actually interviewing his director of HR the next morning. And I said, hey, am I allowed to ask you questions about this? Because that really created quite a stir. And she said, yeah. She said he just didn't know. He didn't understand. He, he thought everybody was like him and they wanted to be in the office. And they had to show him polls and surveys and all kinds of things that said, no, it's just not true. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition, and I'm talking with Kate Lister from Global Workplace Analytics about the changes we've seen in the workplace since the pandemic. Uh, And Kate, I want to talk about this idea of the work from home boundary now, Uh, this idea that the line between your home and your workplace uh, has been erased with the advent of remote work. What kind of impact can that have on someone? It makes people feel like they're constantly on. um, And this has always been a problem with remote work. And what it means is adopting new practices and processes. One of the things that I, I feel has happened over the last three years is that we've been in triage mode. Uh, we're going to go back. We're going to go back. We're going to go back. And so companies have not really changed the practices and the processes to the, to support the way people are working. I, I equate it to having a cell phone, but only using it at home, you know, when we first got cell phones <laughs> or a smartphone and only using it to make phone calls. One of those practices and processes is how to set those boundaries. Only 30% of companies have offered training to their employees about how to be effective uh, when they're remote. And one of the important things is to set team norms. So, you know, have it written down. This is, I'm available to you until this time. 
you can call me before this. Uh, I have at the bottom of my email, if you're reading this after hours, don't respond, go do whatever, <laughs> go have some fun <laughs> to, to sort of set the, the pace that if I'm, maybe I want to work at three in the morning, but that doesn't mean that my people do. And so it's really about having those, those conversations and the understanding of what's fair. On the other hand, you know, I don't really agree with some countries like France, who has put in, I forget what they call it, but essentially they block the VPN after working hours so that employees can't work. Well, it doesn't make sense to me either because one of the benefits of working remotely is that you can shift your time. And as I said, a lot of people want to do that. And some of us are night owls, not me, by the way, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that, that you know want to work at 11 or 12 or one in the morning, or maybe because of their family situation, that's when they have to. So it really comes down to individual choice. And there is there just is no one size fits all in, in this game. Uh, it's different by country. It's different by region. Uh, New York is different than uh, Texas, than San Diego. Uh, it's different by personality type. It's different by life stage, all kinds of things. And so, you know, what a company really needs to understand is what can we support best with the office? What are the activities that are going to be done there? And how do we best support them? Because quite frankly, I think one of the reasons people don't want to go back to the office is because they made them so bloody miserable <laughs> over the last 10 years. <laughs> What I'm thinking, what comes to mind is that being able to be flexible and sort of work with everyone's needs within the company is really kind of a part of being inclusive, right? Absolutely. And the, one of the things that I really hope we can take forward that we learned from the pandemic, that we were not inclusive. Uh, when we were working with people at a distance, those people were ignored, basically. And early in the pandemic, those people sort of started saying, hey, wow, I, I really feel like I'm more part of it because we're all this you know, egalitarian square <laughs> on the screen. It also allows people to hire from different areas that allows them to uh, bring in people of, of uh, different cultures and, and race. Uh, the disabled, uh, we actually, the, the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics showed that the disabled uh, are ho more highly employed now than they were before the pandemic. I mean, isn't that great? Yeah. Do you think the pandemic really uh, encouraged people to put their own needs uh, as an employee above the needs of their employer? Oh, yes. Uh, Microsoft did a, a big study of uh, 10,000 people or so and showed that there's been a total shift in what people value. And over 50% of people said that they now value their, their work-life balance over the their job. Um, they, they've put themselves first. I've been speaking with Kate Lister, president of Global Workplace Analytics based in Carlsbad. Kate, thank you so much for talking with us today. Great to talk to you. When we come back, we'll talk about how we should be thinking about illness. I would never just be light about having COVID because it still has this unpredictable aspect that someday, hopefully, we'll We'll triumph over. That's ahead. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. The pandemic changed so much about how we look after our own health and well-being. But how has the era of COVID-19 impacted what we do to safeguard our health and what we know about illness in the first place? 
Joining us now with more on how COVID has changed our perceptions of sickness and health overall is Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. Dr. Topol, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Jade. Great to be with you as always. Likewise. Okay, so I think most people listening have had at least a COVID scare, at least one time, wondering if the cough or itchy throat is COVID or a cold or just allergies. Do you think the pandemic has generally made us more aware or even anxious about our day-to-day health? Oh, sure. I don't think there's any question of that. Um, For those who are health conscious, when you get symptoms that could be COVID, uh, knowing that this virus has uh, more far-reaching adverse potential, uh, it's natural to be concerned. And of course, because it can simulate now with people having been vaccinated and prior infections and combinations, um, oftentimes it isn't COVID, thankfully. Uh, and I would never just be light about having COVID because it still has this unpredictable uh, aspect that someday, hopefully, will will triumph over. So what are your biggest takeaways about how people view everyday sickness now versus before the pandemic? Well, I think uh, there still should be awareness uh, that it could be COVID and get tested because not only could you have um, the sequela, but you also could pass it along unwittingly. Um, but otherwise, you know, I think we went through three years when people largely uh, for forgo their um, would forgo their testing, uh, you know, like screening tests and checkups because they just didn't want to deal with going to a clinic and a medical facility. So there's a lot of catch up going on right now. But on the other hand, there's not as much that there should be, right? So, um, you know, people learn to to uh, kind of not do this stuff and not be as health conscious. And obviously, um, there was a lot of problems with being able to have a normal life and go to gyms and, you know, do things that were more in the health uh, lifestyle positive. Uh, we're we're getting back to that now. Uh, we're still in this kind of endemic state where the virus is circulating. But overall, hopefully, we're going to get a reboot that people's health consciousness and lifestyles will be not only fully restored, but even go beyond where it was at baseline. But is it safe to get back out there to go to the gym? I mean, it's still an enclosed area. I know for myself, it does create a little anxiety. Yes, there is a risk. It's small, though. The level of circulating virus is low. We're at the lowest wastewater, uh, lowest hospitalizations, fatalities of COVID, you know, since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, I don't think um, the risk of being in a gym is appreciable. It's it's there. I think there's more of a risk uh, when you're in a room with a large number of people indoors, especially when there's not adequate ventilation. Uh, most of the time now, as you know, Jade, people aren't wear- wearing masks. So when you're in that kind of setting, that should be uh, a time to rethink about wearing a mask. And as you also know, uh, just wearing a mask when people aren't in their vicinity is not as good as everybody masking up. But we already saw recently a CDC conference uh, that was held with 2,000 people, and they didn't wear masks. And the conference, ironically, was about the progress that's being made in COVID, with COVID. And then there was a significant outbreak. So it can still happen. And that was recent. So we can't just let down. And I understand the concerns about the gym, particularly because people, you know, heavy breathing, putting stuff out in the air. 
So obviously you'd be better in a gym where there were few people or nobody else exercising um, if you could pick your time, but also the risk is getting low. And, you know, a lot of people say um, you just got to move on with your life. And also an important point is if you did get COVID now, the chance if you're vaccinated with boosters and if you had prior COVID added on to that, chance of you getting ill, especially if you're below age 65, is low. And there's things like Paxlovid and there's metformin and there's things that we didn't have before. So the worry factor shouldn't be nearly as high as it used to be. In terms of keeping our guard up, I mean, you know, people really took to hand washing, using hand sanitizer and other daily health precautions. Do you think it's generally a good idea to keep up those habits or are we maybe overdoing it with the sanitizer, causing more harm than good? That's a good question. Uh, You know, overall, it's good hygiene and there are a lot of other pathogens out there besides this uh, virus. So overall, it's a good practice. I think when you overdo it, then you start getting into this whole hygiene hypothesis about, you know, things that we are more sensitized to pathogens. I mean, this goes back to the whole peanut allergy in children. And, uh, you know, I think that the concern here is if if it's overdone unnecessarily, um, is that not good for your immune system? That is, you know, some exposure uh, may actually be uh, be helpful. So everything is good in moderation. Jane, I think this fits into that uh, umbrella as well. And more to that point, a lot has changed in terms of taking precautions. For example, uh, before the pandemic, it was common practice to just power through it. Uh, power through a cold, rather, and and show up to the workplace or or school, regardless. I mean, how do you think the pandemic has changed that? Yeah, I mean, I think we have to be looking after each other uh, and, you know, not showing up when it's a question of, could you be infectious? Could you have COVID? I mean, there's a a huge difference in the uh, common cold versus COVID in terms of liabilities to others. So, you know, that's why even though we moved to this non-emergency phase uh, as, as defined by the government, there still should be the concern, you know, get tested, be sure that you're, you're, you're not um, uh, unwittingly uh, potentially harming others. So uh, we, we, that's something that we will be with us for, for some time going forward. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think before people would, you know, kids would go to school and um, they might, you know, be be sick, but, you know, not to the point where it's really affecting their energy and health otherwise. But now we just got to be a little more cautious because, you know, there still could be outbreaks, these so-called wavelets. And who wants to be part of that? No less to be the one that is the um, patient zero that's, uh, you know, responsible. So, you know, that's the sort of thing that, you know, it, it's, it's just being a good Samaritan uh, to not uh, be a vector uh, of of an outbreak. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm speaking with Dr. Eric Topol, Director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute. Dr. Topol, I want to move now to a topic you covered in your latest Substack article. It's an involving discussion of the risk of disease after getting COVID. Uh, so first things first, I have to ask, what's the latest research on long COVID? Well, the latest research uh, there is... Um, we haven't still had a treatment validated for any aspect of long COVID. I interestingly met with uh, one of the leaders at NIH this morning uh, about it. And um, the recovery trial is working on that, but 
of course, I think much too slowly because we really need effective treatments that are, are with compelling evidence rather than just anecdote. Um, but the exciting thing about long COVID is its prevention, not just with vaccines, not just likely with Paxlovid tr tr early treatment, but metformin, which is a very commonly used drug for people with type 2 diabetes, but now has been shown in a, 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 a really good randomized trial that had uh, a significant reduction of developing long COVID if you get if you get COVID. So something to think about it. It's widely available uh, with a prescription from a physician, very inexpensive. That's a that's progress on preventing long COVID, but we're still stuck on the treatment side. I hope we'll see some things soon, but um, it's frustrating because the U.S. put a billion dollars into this program called Recover, and uh, we haven't seen any trials. Of, of treatments, which is what we desperately need. You know, in this latest article, it really deals with the elevated risk that people face in contracting a number of diseases after getting COVID. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so this is where there's two fronts uh, that are very concerning. Uh, the first is developing diabetes. So type 2 diabetes, 12 different reports, most, you know, very large, very uh, impressive, that the risk of diabetes um, is significantly increased well well after the time of having COVID, even with mild COVID. So this is beyond 30 days. So uh, that's one of those things uh, we, in the earlier part of our discussion that uh, you, know, you should be screened for if you're not uh, feeling well and possibly your blood sugar is fasting or high, um, that, that could be um, connected the dots between what's going on there so there is an increase um it's still low but it's significantly higher than if you haven't had covid and that's one big body of data that's you know not it's it's incontrovertible now as far as i can see the other thing which is very concerning is that there's three studies all of which are concordant uh for the increased risk of autoimmune diseases Things like rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, Sjogren's syndrome, uh, systemic sclerosis, the whole uh, grouping of autoimmune diseases uh, have been increased. Not as big a margin as with diabetes. It's about oh, 25, 30% increase, but still an increase. That is, it appears that COVID, you know, weeks, months after getting COVID, some people have triggering of their immune system to go into this self-directed antibodies or self-directed T-cell um, problem and develop a condition. For both these, Jade, the autoimmune and diabetes, it's possible that there'll be recovery. We, we don't have a long enough follow-up, but and there have been some for diabetes. But uh, this is one of the unknowns is, will this be transient? Will it only last for a matter of months? Will people's immune system you know, start to revert to baseline? That's, that's an unknown at this point. And of course, you know, children and how they respond to diseases are a big part of this discussion. So what does the latest data say about how young people encounter disease post-COVID? Well, the fortunate thing is there, the younger uh, a child is, the less chance it appears to be of having long COVID and these different sequelae. So remember, you look at long COVID, it's two different compartments, one of the symptoms, and the other are these adverse effects like the diabetes and the autoimmune and the heart attacks and strokes. So children, the younger they are, the less chance of any of this stuff. 
But as they get older and more into adolescence, they start to get um, the risks that approach that of adults. Now, fortunately, uh, children usually don't have severe COVID. They usually don't wind up in the hospital. And we do know, of course, all these complications we're talking about are more apt to occur with severe COVID. So overall, it's less of an issue with children, but they're not exempt by any means. Even, you know, young children, infants, still it can happen. It's just not as frequent. And finally, I want to end on something a little different. Recently, the Surgeon General uh, identified loneliness as the latest public health epidemic. And I'm sure some of that can be attributed to the pandemic and the need to isolate. But what are your thoughts on this? And how can people connect and get back out there safely? Right, Jade. Our, our, our Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, who's a good friend of mine, wrote a book about this on loneliness. And he is certainly an authority. Uh, and he's pointing out that this is a, a serious concern. Uh, obviously, in the early time of the pandemic, with uh, forms of lockdown, this was taken to a level that was unprecedented. But there's lots of residual loneliness. Uh, so many people, you know, work at home and hardly leave leave, leave their cave. Uh, uh, but even those who are essential workers, um, you know, the 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 human to human interactions and bonds aren't still what they were pre-pandemic. So, and even then there was obviously a, 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 a huge issue with this. Uh, so many people, you know, living alone. So uh, what I think is great is that uh, our Surgeon General is on it and there will be efforts to try to uh, provide uh, uh, improvements. Uh, but it is something we should acknowledge. It's, it's um, something that is very tightly intertwined with mental health. And uh, we are, uh, the, our species is one that relies on human, uh, human bonds and interactions, friends and family and all the things that are essential for uh, our mental health. So uh, hopefully we'll see work to be done to, uh, to titrate the problem because it's a significant one. I've been speaking with Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute. Dr. Topol, as always, thank you so much for your insight. Oh, thanks for your great questions. Always enjoy it. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. Give us a call, 619-452-0228. Leave a message or you can email us at midday at kpbs.org. And if you ever miss a midday show, you can find our podcast on all platforms. I'm Jade Hindman. Thanks for listening. KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com.